You're listening to The Littlest Things in Life, and I'm your host, Nicholas Boyer, an anatomic and clinical pathology resident here at the Mayo Clinic, bringing you a podcast on microbiology, infectious disease, and the littlest things that have changed our world, and will continue to one bug at a time. For those that remember the trailer for this very broadcast, I spent some time in speaking with Dr. Justin Kreuter regarding the relevance of microbiology in our world today. That trailer aired on February 3rd. In that four-minute recording, I mentioned a few examples of how microbiology and infectious disease remain relevant to our world today. I gave a few examples, including the bubonic plague, the Ebola outbreak of 2014, and at that time, I gave a quick offhanded comment regarding a novel coronavirus coming out of China to, quote, a new player on the board, what has collectively become known as COVID-19. In as little as five months, this virus has spread across the globe, affecting millions and with consequences still yet unforeseen. We're all now painfully learning firsthand the relevance of infectious disease and the tolls they will take on humanity. For those of us here at The Littlest Things of Life and the Mayo Clinic's Lab Medicine Rounds, we hope you and your families are healthy and are weathering this storm. Today we have a relevant and interesting topic for episode two, From Dust to Dust, Microbiology and the Medical Autopsy. Now, according to the CDC and the National Center for Health Statistics, autopsy rates around the world have been steadily declining over the last few decades. Their importance, however, has not. A postmortem exam, or autopsy, provides a multitude of functions. They not only determine the cause and manner of death, they aid us in surveillance and in public health, providing information for epidemiological observation and for public health outreach and initiatives. They provide an unparalleled educational benefit to newly trained laboratory technologists, medical students, pathology assistants, and pathology residents, myself included, so we may better understand human anatomy and pathology. An already involved medical process, I spent some time wondering about the impact of an infectious agent. What would have to change in autopsy? In what ways do microorganisms hinder or help an investigation? And how would we even begin to approach an autopsy for a completely unknown new biological agent? In order to discuss these questions and to obtain a better understanding of the impact of microbiology on a medical autopsy, we are joined today by Mayo Clinic's own Dr. Reed Quinton. Dr. Quinton is the former Deputy Chief Medical Examiner at the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences and Director of the Forensic Pathology Fellowship Program at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. A recent transplant to Rochester, Minnesota, he underwent his orientation here at the same week I happened to interview for residency at the Mayo Clinic. We are now fortunate enough to have him here as an Assistant Professor of Laboratory and Pathology and as one of Mayo Clinic's select medical examiners. A frequent visitor to Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm glad he's here to talk with me today. Dr. Quinton, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me, Nick. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I could be here today, too. It's been a little bit longer than we anticipated. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, talking about infectious disease and microbiology, we couldn't foresee the impact that this would have. And it just so happened everything had to get delayed. And well, I'm glad that we were able to get here today. Absolutely. So let's back up and start at the beginning. So how did you come to choose forensic pathology as a career? So the standard answer I give for this, Nick, it, it basically has to do with my father. Uh, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, at the time, my father was a New Orleans police officer who, uh, after I finished school, uh, finally retired after 35 years. And when I was a kid, uh, he used to always tell me, son, you can be anything when you grow up, but please do not come home and tell me you want to be a police officer or I'll kill you. So that was pretty good motivation. Um, that being said, I, I still had that uh, sort of immersion of law enforcement just 
you know, by osmosis, if you will. And so uh, I always had an interest in that. And so I ended up going to school, originally thinking I was going to go into the hot new topic of DNA in forensics. And then uh, eventually, one of my professors in uh, college recommended possibly going to medical school. And at first, I thought, I don't want to be a doctor. I never even considered that. Uh, but then he said, well, what about forensic pathology? And that ended up sort of starting my career. So where did you train and where were you prior to the Mayo Clinic? So originally I went to medical school at LSU Med Center in New Orleans. And then after that did my anatomic and clinical pathology residency at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. I stayed there back then. It was still a five-year training program. So I did a five-year training program in APCP. Then after that, stayed on for an additional year to do uh, my forensic pathology fellowship at the Southwestern Institute of Forensic Sciences there in Dallas. And then I stayed on as faculty. Very interesting. So can you tell us about just the general practice of forensic pathology? Pathology as a whole is often underrepresented in the medical community, medical school in particular. The specialty is even less so. So can you talk to us about that? Sure. So uh, you're absolutely right. Forensic pathology is sort of the tiny, tiny division within a tiny specialty to begin with. Uh, so uh, very few people go into forensic path. In fact, right now we estimate across the entire country, there are probably about 500 board certified forensic pathologists that are actually practicing. There's some more that are retired as well. But uh, so 500, if you think about for the entire country and all the cities and medical examiner offices involved. That's not many. So uh, we probably could easily double that number. Uh, there is uh, a big difference between forensic pathology and uh, just regular anatomic hospital pathology. Uh, and just for that matter, for it, there's a big difference between anatomic pathology in general and forensics, uh, the way we sort of tackle things and look at things. And that has to do uh, somewhat with the environment we work in. Uh, obviously, it's a medical legal setting. Uh, we have to work within oftentimes a constrained budget, depending on if your office is affiliated with a government agency as opposed to a uh, uh, medical center or something like that. So it, there are a lot of differences there. Very interesting. So how often would you say that forensic pathology and microbiology themselves intersect with each other? It depends. Um, in the simplest format, uh, there's sort of always that intersection because one of the things we are constantly having to battle with in our cases is the idea of decompositional change, which is sort of distilled down the simplest form of microbiology, if you will. But uh, everything we do, we have to consider uh, the condition of the body, uh, what is the relative postmortem interval? How will that affect the other testing and dissections we do? Uh, so there's that. Um, but then also, more specifically from a diagnostic standpoint, uh, there are, uh, it, it depends. It, it, sometimes we see a lot of those cases, or in some jurisdictions, we may see more of those. In others, we might rarely see a case in which microbiology is related to the cause of death. Um, I think the most interesting thing for us is that you just have to assume that every single case is infective in some way. We have to treat them all the same because unlike hospital cases where we have a history and we have uh, medical records, many of our cases die at home or die just out on the street and we don't have right. any of that information. 
So what are the challenges of doing these kind of studies? Like if you wanted to perform microbiology studies in your practice, what are the challenges there that you face? So the biggest thing is sort of that post-mortem interval. Um, the longer that the body uh, is not refrigerated or the longer they've been deceased, uh, the more difficult it can be to actually get good microbiology specimens. Uh, so that's the biggest challenge. Uh, we're always fighting that uh, notion of whether or not we have uh, uh, a contaminant in the specimen. And oftentimes we take cultures, blood cultures, lung cultures, what have you, and uh, we might get some extra bugs in there we didn't intend to get. So you have to sort of read all of your results with a grain of salt. And sometimes even if you have a positive result, mm -hmm. you have to sort of reassess it and go, well, it's positive because something grew, but does this make sense for the case? Within so that's the probably the biggest challenge. Interesting. So for as doing this as long as you have and you know, doing this in multiple locations now, um, what types of interesting microbiology cases have you seen so far? So in, in general, I think some people go into forensic pathology for the sort of sexy, if you will, uh, cases, the, you know, the homicides and the things that you see on TV. Right. Um, and some of us just really enjoy the cases that sort of start in one direction and then veer completely off course. And I think of many of my microbiology cases in that manner. So uh, for instance, uh, many cases, again, come in and they're just a blank slate. You don't know why they died. You have no medical records or anything to give you a hint. And so you're just starting from scratch. Um, some of them come in under the assumption that this is going to be you know, a heart attack and it turns out to be uh, you know, pulmonary thromboembolus or whatever. Um, one of the ones that really sticks out in my mind is a case I had several years back, and I, I used to do many, many of the pediatric autopsies uh, in the office. And um, I had a, a young baby that came in, was just a few months old, and I was performing the autopsy. I had uh, a CPS worker actually watching the case because they wanted to just make sure that there was nothing going on. And as I was doing the autopsy, I found several things that suggested that this child actually had a possible uh, meningitis. So the leptomeninges looked a little cloudy. Uh, importantly, uh, and turned out to be much more important later, the adrenal glands were hemorrhagic. So that was uh, interesting. And so I remember distinctly walking out of the case that day and telling the CPS worker, well, I, you know, I can't say for sure yet, but it looks like this will probably be a natural death or a meningitis. Within five minutes of the time I walked out of the morgue, I get a phone call from law enforcement in that jurisdiction. And they told me they had the gentleman uh, who was watching the, the child arrested and in jail. And I said, why? And they said, well, because we think he shook that baby to death. And so now we're in a situation where there's a person who is in jail awaiting my results. And so it was kind of a nice relief to be able to go back and turn around and say, no, that's not what happened. In fact, this turned out to be a natural death and, and it was a microbiology case. So that oh, was wow. interesting. Yeah. Um, so that was good news for him. The uh, another one that sticks out in my mind is a teenage girl who had, died suddenly and unexpectedly at home. And um, it turned out during the autopsy, she had a, uh, a very, very uh, prominent myocarditis. So she had a viral myocarditis. 
And um, at the time, everybody in her school and class was, was nervous about, you know, why was she not there? What happened? Why did she die? And uh, the, the diagnosis in this case was relatively straightforward. But what, I, what sticks out in my mind on this particular case is at one point I got a phone call and uh, the person who called to ask for results in the case uh, was representing himself as from the school. And very soon when I got into the conversation, I realized something's not right. So I asked him to clarify what his role was. And it turned out it was the father of another child in the class. And he was just concerned about his own child. And um, he was, let's just say, not happy when I told him I knew what the cause of death was and I was not going to share it with him because I hadn't shared it with her own family yet. Um, but, you know, these are some of the pitfalls we have to watch out for in, in forensic circles, at least. For more COVID-19 education resources, visit mayocliniclab.com forward slash education COVID-19. So you practiced in Dallas for almost 15 years. Now, I brought up in the introduction when I'm talking about microbiology influences the world, we actually talked about the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Now, unfortunately, that was not just contained to West Africa. We had cases in Europe and America as people uh, went to Africa to help and as they came back. Can you tell us about the Ebola scare in 2014? Were you involved in that one fatality in Dallas? Somewhat, uh, peripherally, yeah. That We were right in the center of that uh, Ebola scare when it occurred. Um, I say somewhat because logistically, it technically wasn't a medical examiner case, and I'll get to that in a second. But uh, just to give people a little history, um, we essentially had in, I'd say, mid-September, a Liberian citizen who had flown into Dallas to be with family. And uh, when he was traveling, he didn't uh, note all of his contact information, one of which happened to be that he had carried an Ebola victim to the hospital uh, shortly before uh, his travel. Uh, so once he got to Dallas, he started to have just some very general symptoms, nausea, headache, fever, things like that, uh, but nothing really that stood out. He actually presented to the emergency room, and this was at Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas, and uh, after getting worked up, they sent him home and said it was probably just viral and it would be fine, uh, but then he returned about four days, three or four days later, uh, to the emergency room with worsening symptoms. Uh, at that point, uh, some of the folks in the hospital were concerned enough that they called the health department to request Ebola testing. Uh, interestingly, at the time, the CDC did not want to run the test. They didn't think that there was enough reason to do so, um, but our own health department in Dallas reached out to Austin, Texas, where their health department, the state health department, had just developed Ebola testing and, in fact, had never actually tested it on a real case yet. So it was validated, but that was it. Um, so after some back and forth, they uh, eventually accepted the case and the CDC accepted uh, sort of doing a uh, confirmation test. And that's sort of when everything, uh, when everything happened. So uh, it was interesting in that uh, there was even criticism in the way it was handled as far as the samples were originally mailed to Austin to be tested. And uh, uh, they, even though it was handled in exactly the same way 
any other viral sample would have been shipped. Um, there were some questions about whether or not that was appropriate, but of course, uh, transport by vehicle was also out of the question because uh, of uh, many, many issues potentially with that as well. So there was no right. good way to do it. Uh, just to move ahead slightly, the, the decedent ended up dying on October 8th. So the reason I say it, it sort of tangentially affected us was that because this person was uh, in a hospital, had a cause of death, that he basically had a diagnosis, uh, he's not technically medical ex examiner jurisdiction. So there's no reason for us to take jurisdiction of the case uh, or have anything to do with it necessarily. Um, that being said, one of the reasons we got involved with it was because no one knew what to do with the body. Uh, so there was a lot of debate over where could the body be stored? How was it going to be handled? And uh, eventually, uh, there was one uh, crematorium in town that accepted uh, the case. And, and so he was cremated sort of under our guidance. But uh, it was it was interesting times. During the time that he was in the hospital, eventually two of his healthcare workers got infected. Um, both of them made it through with an, without any uh, major impact. They, they both survived. Um, but the scariest part was that one of those two healthcare workers on October 14th was given permission to travel, um, even though at the time they didn't know she was, she was positive. But, right. um, but even though she had been exposed to this patient, they didn't think that would be a problem. So that was scary too, because you could see it was almost like a bad movie. That's sort right. of step one on where this thing blows up. But uh, thankfully, no one on the plane got infected. Um, the, uh, the cost or the I would say the effect of this Ebola scare on that particular hospital was tremendous. And I think, uh, interestingly, comparing that to what's going on exactly right now, it's almost similar. Uh, basically, their revenue dropped dramatically because no one wanted right. to go to the Ebola hospital. Uh, and they, they eventually bounced back after a couple of months, but for a while it was pretty scary and they weren't sure financially if they would weather it. Um, the other thing that was really interesting uh, was just sort of the general scare. So uh, just like we're seeing with COVID, you know, suddenly people were buying masks and hoarding things. Um, right. The, uh, the thing that I think was more interesting wasn't necessarily a hoarding phenomenon, but sort of this um, almost irrational fear of being around people who might have been around this person. So almost like a six degrees type game. Um, the one that stands out to me was the cleaning crew. So there was actually a crew that was hired by Homeland Security, local guys that were, that were hired to go into this gentleman's apartment where his, the rest of the family lived and basically clean up everything. Mm -hmm. um, you can imagine that everyone else in that entire complex was terrified. Um, and the, the three workers uh, from that cleaning crew then had to deal with the public who did not want their company coming to clean all the other places they traditionally clean. So other uh, public buildings or private homes or what have you that they normally had as clients didn't want them coming because they were afraid they had been exposed to Ebola. So they, they uh, had to deal with that. And then of course, um, 
there were panic. I mean, people didn't want to send their children to school where there were children who went to that school from that same apartment complex, you know, so it got, got complicated. Um, so it's, like I said, some of that fear is sort of reflected in, in what we see for the COVID, except the COVID thing was more of a reaction to, you know, like supplies and not exposure. Um, as far as our ME response goes, like I said, I mean, we had no authority to conduct an autopsy, thankfully, which was nice. Um, but we just had to coordinate what was going to happen. But the, uh, the things that really did affect us were, uh, for instance, PPE. You know, as we're seeing now, there was a huge surge in uh, purchasing of PPE to begin with. So gloves and masks became, uh, you know, high, high price commodity. Um, for someone like me who was an administrator, I had to deal with the fact that suddenly the prices of gloves and masks, you know, just skyrocketed. So it went up, it doubled, tripled, quadrupled in some cases. And uh, when you're working as a county agency, your budget is very limited. So trying to figure out how are we going to survive just keeping gloves stocked was a problem. Right. Uh, and so I, I guess the only good thing that really, really came out of this for our office at that time was we had to essentially change and update all of our personal protective equipment protocols, uh, because at that point, we had to assume everybody was infected. So that actually gave us the ability to sort of go back, review all of our procedures and say, you know, where do we have gaps? Where could we be protecting ourselves better? So, so there was something good that came out of it, but it was a terrifying couple of weeks for sure. Oh no, absolutely. And that actually leads, that was actually going to be my next question is, you know, given the severity and the pathogenicity of these things, um, how did these impact your practice? But that was actually really, really nice. So the, the last question, the big question then is given the information that you now have learned, regarding both the Ebola outbreak of 2014 and COVID-19 now, um, to what level are we prepared for what comes next? I mean, it's obviously really difficult to foresee the next big infectious disease outbreak, but how do you approach this now for something that's completely unknown? Right. Uh, that is the question. And like you said, I mean, it, it completely depends on what the pathogen is. So uh, if we had another scare that was at the level of Ebola, uh, that would change my practice quite differently than another, you know, scare at the level of the current COVID scare. Um, we're lucky here at Mayo as far as the practices that we already have in place are what I would normally do. So we didn't really change much as far as how do we protect ourselves uh, during a COVID you know, potential COVID autopsy. And in fact, um, you know, many of the medical examiner offices, again, looking at limited budgets, conserving PPE, things like that, uh, many offices are choosing not to autopsy these cases at all. Basically just swab them, confirm they're positive, and, and that's it. For us, we're actually doing the opposite because there's such a demand for research material. So looking for tissue uh, for several COVID studies, we're actively trying to uh, get permission to do some of these COVID autopsies, uh, but we're well prepared to do it. There's nothing in our protocol that uh, uh, really needed to be changed. Uh, but if we had another scare of something you know, more vir virulent than that, uh, then the practice would have to alter itself again. And I think the biggest thing, and, and you saw it while you were on the service with us, is sort of developing a 
titration point of when do you do cases, when do you not do cases. Um, right. We have, you know, as opposed to other practices in medicine, uh, we have the ability to sort of determine do you do uh, an autopsy or not. And, uh, you know, you can't really do that if you have a patient come into the emergency room and they need a surgery, you, you pretty much have to do it. I mean, there's not much uh, give or take otherwise. But so, as, as you know, we developed sort of a tiered system here where we said, you know, at first, assuming that we don't get overwhelmed with cases, uh, we are going to, you know, for the COVID cases, do swabs and then autopsy the case. However, if we hit a saturation point at which uh, we're doing too many cases per day, we can start to do swab only cases where we right. just confirm whether or not they have that and that's it. Uh, and then, you know, we actually had a third and fourth tier. The third tier would be uh, if someone died at home and there was a suspicion, we would just swab them at the scene and then release the body. Uh, and then fourth tier after that would be if if we were completely overwhelmed with the system, uh, you do get to a point where you basically just uh, assess it based on the history and then, and then certify the cause of death based on that. Um, so again, thankfully for this particular instance here, uh, we have not really had to do that. We, we haven't had to titrate this, the uh, cases very much. That's very different from a massive office like New York, New Jersey, um, you know, Los Angeles, where they already have an overwhelming volume of normal uh, medical examiner cases that come through the door. Uh, so clearly, they're, they are not going to have the uh, ability to do autopsies on all these cases, nor, the, nor are they going to have the PPE. All right. Well, fascinating. Well, thank you, Dr. Quinn, for taking the time to discuss this topic with me today. It's a pleasure to finally get this done. Uh, um, <laughs> really enjoyed doing it. Great. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this bonus series under Lab Medicine Rounds. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. In addition, if you'd like to follow along and learn more about what we've discussed today, please follow me at The Littlest Pod or at Dr. Buer on Twitter. If you enjoyed this special episode of The Littlest Things in Life, please subscribe and listen to Lab Medicine Rounds. Thank you. Thank you.